Yuma, Yangu Nalamanye, Tunimanye, Nonawalwari, Tarawalwari, Marapichi Mulangari Chinyila, Kolambani Yarabinyin, Naraganawali Ninyin, Nona Yarabi Yangu, Yumalundi, Nonawalwari, Tarawalwari, and this means Today, we are all gathering together on Nunawal country. This country is my ancestors' spiritual homeland. And we are keeping the pathways of our ancestors alive by walking together as one. Welcome to Nunawal country. Far away, in an ancient land of mystery, live the Gagoju people. They have lived in these lands, called Kakadu, for more than 40,000 years. The people are heir to the longest unbroken culture the world has ever known. Throughout their history, the Gagoju have lived in harmony with their environment. To them, man, animals, plants, and the earth itself are as one. They are all manifestations of a single life force. To maintain their mystical union with nature, the people say they must look after the country. They do this through their art and many other subtle ways. Only the wise and fully initiated elders know how to look after the country. They are the custodians of the land and the traditions. But there are only a few of them now. The young people have been swept up by another, more aggressive culture. This is the story of Kakadu, as seen through the eyes of its last traditional inhabitants. A story that opens a window on a very different perception of life. Come explore the worlds of the National Geographic Specials. Made possible by a grant from the people of Chevron. We're proud to bring you television that brings new worlds to your world. Additional funding provided by the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. According to a group of Australian Aborigines called the Gagoju, the world always existed. But long ago, before the dream time, it had no shape. 
Then, at the beginning of the dream time, the time of Genesis, creator beings came out of the sea to form the lands and to create life. Two hundred years ago, all of Australia was occupied by Aborigines. But now, only a few groups remain on their traditional lands. The Gagoju is one of these. The land on which they live is called Kakadu. It belongs to the Aborigines and is managed on their behalf as a national park. Kakadu is dominated by a sandstone escarpment which towers over extensive wetlands and eucalypt woodlands. In the dream time, when men could change into animals and animals into men, the creator beings gave shape to the land. When Ginga was a man, he was burned accidentally. To save himself, he rushed into the water and turned himself into a crocodile. To this day, his back is covered with blister-like lumps. Ginga then turned himself to stone, and all his nodules and lumps became part of the landscape. Snakes, using their powerful coils, made stone archways and great sweeps of hills. Gondagich, the ancestral kangaroo traveled through Kakadu making mounds of stones and hollowing out depressions. The land so created was bountiful and provided the people with all their spiritual and material needs. In the old days, life for the Aborigines was free and good. No worries then, they say. Their society was vigorous and meaningful, the cohesion of its laws and traditions having been forged over a 40,000-year history. This was before the Balanda, the white people, came and disrupted their existence. Natural foods such as turtle eggs and water lily roots were plentiful. Now the traditional lands are almost empty. Diseases from foreign places and other pressures have taken their toll. Few people still live in the wilds of Kakadu. But in the rock shelters where the Gaguju once lived, places that rang with their laughter and reverberated with the drone of didgeridoos, their culture lives on in luminous paintings of hunters, animals, and dangerous spirits. The first artistic stirrings in Kakadu, among the earliest for mankind, began perhaps 30,000 years ago. These paintings are impressions of grasses, hands, or other objects.
Many thousands of years later, finely crafted paintings of animals first appeared. Kangaroos and crocodiles were painted larger than life. Delicate images depicting vigorous action followed. A man stalks an emu from behind the cover of a bundle of grass. He spears the giant bird, which cries out as it is mortally wounded. Present-day Aborigines do not relate to the early paintings. They say these were made by the friendly Mimi spirits, and that over the millennia, the Mimis taught the people to paint, but in a different style, one that shows the animal's bones and internal organs. It is known as the X-ray style. Many important images were painted by neither man nor spirit. They came into being when dreamtime heroes placed themselves on the rocks. These apparitions contain the spirit and the power of the dreamtime. By painting at these sacred places, the people could draw on the power of the dreamtime and so ensure that life would continue in all its bounty and diversity. Extensive galleries were fashioned, where generations of artists painted layer upon layer of figures. Deep in the bush, they created some of the world's greatest art treasures. About 150 years ago, a change occurred in the life and art of the Gagoju. Sailing ships brought people from other continents. These people penetrated the Gagoju's land on horseback. They dominated the Aborigines with strange new weapons. And soon, say the Gagoju, these strangers, standing with hands in pockets, told us what to do. The last major rock art in Kakadu was painted in 1964 by a man called Najambolmi. It was a heroic, almost desperate effort to maintain the links with the power of the dream time. A year after completing his masterwork, Najambolmi died the power of the dream time began to wane. You know what I said in a cave over there, that painting? Three by his way. The custody of the land and the culture rests on the shoulders of a small group of elderly men. They alone know the laws and traditions. None of this knowledge is written down and it survives only in the minds of these few. They are the library of the Gagoju. Big Bill Naiji is the philosopher. He is concerned with matters of the spirit and the totality of Aboriginal law. Nipper Gaboriki is the principal keeper of the stories of the Dreamtime, a 
about creator beings and ancestral animals. Felix Ianuk is the custodian of the most sacred ceremonies. Only he still knows the burial rites. Louis Ilkir is the artist, one of the last men left in Kakadu who carries on the traditions of Najan Bolmi. But he paints only on tree bark, not on rock. A new generation of Gagoju has come of age, but most grew up away from their culture. Naiji's son, Jonathan Yaramana, is one of the few who has returned to learn about Aboriginal law and to assume custodianship. In the modern world, he is doing it in two ways, as a Gagoju following tribal law and as a park ranger. It is an uneasy burden with which he is still learning to cope. The Gagoju have access to the artifacts of the technological age. But many, like Ilkir and his wife, Alajingu, prefer to live in the bush in small family groups. Ilkir gathers all the materials for his paintings from the bush around him. In the age-old way, he cuts the bark off a tree to be used as his canvas. The only difference is in the axe he uses. Its head is made of steel, where once it would have been made of stone. When he has straightened and cured the bark, Ilkir is ready to begin his painting. First, he covers the entire surface with red ochre, which represents blood. This, in turn, is the symbol for life itself. The red background will give the subjects vitality. As he prepares the bark, Ilkir thinks about what he will paint and about the techniques he learned from his father. The very act of painting connects the artist with the powers of the dream time. He draws on these powers to ensure that the animals he paints will always be there in abundance.
Dominating the composition is Ginga, the crocodile. The saltwater crocodile is the largest animal in Kakadu and the only really dangerous one. He is a man-eater. Despite his name, this crocodile is as much at home in freshwater as in saltwater. He is the scourge of the billabongs. Ginga's reputation as a man-eater did not deter the Gagoju from hunting the giant reptile. They used to spear him from flimsy log rafts. Crocodile meat is a delicacy. Large and dangerous as Ginga is, he does not rule the wetlands. As the Aborigines say, it is Marawuti, the white-breasted sea eagle, who is the boss around here. When someone dies, the person's spirit is snatched away in Marawuti's huge claws. Marawuti's kingdom is one of the richest habitats, vibrant with life and drama. Watched by the scavenging goanna, Jagana, the black-necked stork, hunts for eels on the grassy edge of the billabong. But for sheer hunting prowess, none can match Marawuti. Generations of sea eagles have raised their young in this nest. Each year, new sticks are added, and the nest grows larger and larger. Out in the billabong, among the floating leaves of the water lilies, lives the lotus bird. The male lotus bird incubates the eggs and raises the chicks on his own. The female, who is slightly larger, leaves the male to search for another partner.
When the lotus bird glimpses Boloko, the water python, he is ready to defend his nest. Soon Boloko retreats into the water plants to set his ambush elsewhere. Four weeks after the last egg was laid, the chicks hatch. Father transports and protects the young until they are about three weeks old. Maruwuti's kingdom is not restricted to the billabongs and floodplain. He also hunts the water holes along the escarpment. In search of fish below, he flies along a sacred rock face. Custodian of this sacred place is Nipper Gabariki. As a fully initiated Gaguju man, it is his duty to look after it. With him is Mini Gapindi. To maintain contact with the spirits of this special place, Gabariki must visit it periodically. It is yet another way to keep the ties with the powers of the dream time. Minigapindi has set off in search of food. 
She has noticed the tracks of freshwater crocodiles on a sandbank. Minnie probes the sand to find any eggs that may have been laid during the night. The Aborigines' knowledge of the country is so detailed and the edible plants and animals are so plentiful that only a few hours each day need be spent to find enough to eat. Gabariki has reached the canyon where the spirits reside. Although he has never seen them, he can feel them watching from caves and crevices. He announces his presence and asks permission to enter the canyon. <laughs> Gabariki's spirit has touched those of the dream time. He reaffirms a 40,000-year continuity. Jue, the great bowerbird, is somewhat sinister to the Gaguju. They call him a cheeky fellow who steals your bones. The bones and snail shells, which the male bird gathers from miles around, are decorations for his arena. He has built it to lure a female. When a female comes to his bower, the male uses many ploys to impress her, even enhancing his presence by displaying his ornaments. Jue's arena resembles the shelter the Gagoju build for initiation ceremonies. The bird also chants and dances as if at a ritual. He is the keeper of their secret ceremonies. That's his job, the people say. Garken, the brown falcon, has come to the grasslands. This is the signal for Big Bill Naiji to begin one of the most important aspects of the maintenance of his tribal lands. Only he and the other elders are traditionally entrusted with the task of burning the grasslands. They must clean the country, they say, but strictly according to Aboriginal law. Yeah, we know.
Michael's son, Jonathan Yaramana, has come to learn just how and when the fires may be lit. The time is right in the season of migrating birds. Animals of the grasslands have grown to maturity and can escape the fire. Also, it is a comparatively cool time of year, and beneath the dry stalks, there is still dampness. Fires will not rage out of control. The country will be cleansed, but not devastated. If the laws about burning are broken, and fires are set later in the season of heat and dryness, there would be great loss of life. The impenetrable grasses have gone. Soon, new shoots will come up through the ashes, attracting kangaroos. It will be easy to hunt and to travel. Jiwei has been unlucky. His laboriously built bower was destroyed in the fire. But most of his precious ornaments have been unaffected. The day after the fire, he begins to rebuild. First, he moves the bones and shells to the new site. After putting down a mat of small sticks, he places the first uprights in position. Working for four or five hours every day, he has a serviceable bower again in about two weeks. Kundamen, the frilled lizard, is an example to all who would disobey Aboriginal law. When he was a man, he was smooth and sleek. But at a sacred ceremony, Gundamen did not listen and performed the wrong rituals. The elders punished him by changing him into a lizard and said he would be thin with a funny-looking loose skin for all time. They said, you spoil the ceremony and people will see you like that forever and ever.
The singing of song cycles is another important way in which the Gagoju maintain the integrity between themselves and the life force. Felix Ianuk sings the cycle about one of the principal creator beings, Injuanjua. Ianuk is the only one who still knows these songs. He said this would probably be the last time that he would ever sing them. Long ago, at the beginning of the dream time, Injuanjua lived in a cave where he painted his own image on the wall. He came across the river, over the plains and billabongs. In his travels, he gave shape to the land, brought important ceremonies, and showed the people what animals to hunt. Ianuk explains that Injuanjua eventually turned himself into stone. He says, Injuanjua walks down here and turns himself into stone. That stone there, that's Injuanjua. This rock is the embodiment of the creator being and is the focus of the life force. Close to Injuanjua, and imbued with his spirit, are the caves where for centuries the Gagoju had placed the bones of their dead. is the only person who still knows the Gagoju's complete burial rites. He explains how the people painted themselves and then carried the bones of the dead to the caves. The two elders are filled with an ineffable sadness as they see their culture slip away. No newly initiated men are following behind them, and only the initiated can be told the secret rites. Take the bone, just put him in his pocket. And they say, goodbye. I go home. Come back. Ianuk says, sometimes I sit down and think about myself, and I cry before I go to sleep, because I am very sorry nobody is coming after us. And when we die, Bill and me, they got to bring our bones right back here to this cave so our spirit can join Injuanjua and our dream time. Bluey Ilkir continues his painting his communion with the powers of the dream time. Kangaroos and wallabies are particularly important to the Aborigines. The giant ancestral kangaroo, similar to the one Ilkir is painting, 
made prominent landforms and gave the people important ceremonies. Of the several species that live in Kakadu, Gondagich, the antelopine kangaroo, is the largest. He is hunted for food, but only the older people can eat him. They say that if young people eat kangaroo meat, they will have bad dreams. These kangaroos live in small social groups and are usually gentle and affectionate. Their smaller neighbor, Gonobolo, the agile wallaby, is more aggressive. foxes are the largest of all the bats. During the day, they rest in colonies that may number more than a hundred thousand individuals. Most colonies are in trees standing in water. It is cooler there. Territorial squabbles are all sound and fury and seldom result in injury. The young black flying foxes cannot fly at birth. They are carried by their mothers even in flight until they are a month old. During the heat of the day, the resting animals fan themselves. Sometimes fanning is not enough. Then the bats lick their wings and the evaporation of their saliva helps to cool them further. When they are ready to take off, they climb to the highest points in the roost trees. To the Aborigines, Goloban, the black flying fox, is associated with the forces of darkness. Medicine men, who are held in high regard, are also sorcerers. They are often called flying fox men. Darkness is the time when evil spirits come out from caves and hollow trees. The people do not venture far from the safety of their campfires. Kakadu's night belongs to the animals. Lambulk, the sugar glider, has left her nest in a tree hollow. Dokun, a tiny insect-eating marsupial, 
is ever ready to tackle insects even larger than himself. After being dormant for several weeks, Beck, the highly venomous death adder, finally sloughs its skin. The snake is now hungry and stalks even Yawk, the brown bandicoot who is much too large for it to overpower. York, however, takes no chances and barricades himself in his nest of dry grass. Because it has no eyelids, the knob-tailed gecko has to clean its eye with its tongue. night has been cool, and the kangaroos seek a sunny place to warm themselves. But Lombulk shuns the sunlight and hurries back to her tree hollow. She will sleep here until darkness falls again. Whenever he has a spare moment, Jonathan Yaramana goes out to his ancestral lands to learn as much as he can from his father. Today, the two visit Hawk Dreaming, a sacred site where the spirit of Garkane, the brown falcon, resides. Bill has difficulty climbing the rock face. This may well be the last time he visits the spirit of Garkane. Bill explains the significance of hawk dreaming and shows Jonathan a hand stencil he made when he was about eight years old and came here with his father. A hand stencil is a kind of signature laying claim to the site, but more in a spiritual 
than a physical sense. A few days later, Bill and Jonathan go to a rock outcrop close to Hawk Dreaming. As a commitment to his Aboriginal heritage, Jonathan will put his hand stencil, his signature, on the rocks near Hawk Dreaming. Jonathan makes his mark the way Gagoju people have done for thousands of years. The spinifex grass on the rock plateau is dying off, heralding the season of hot winds. Waterfalls are no more than trickles. In the woodlands, grasses that escape the fires have died back into a dense mat. The floodplains are reduced to a series of turbid pools. The water turns hot under the burning sun. Barramundi and other fish lie dying in the shallows. Hunters of the billabongs have an easy time, and the scavengers grow fat. A goanna cannot make any impression on the scaly body of a huge barramundi. A four-foot-long lizard must find another way. Marawuti, the sea eagle, is now able to snare much larger prey than usual. Whistling kites with their smaller beaks and talons cannot penetrate the scales of such a large fish. They wait for Marawuti to do that. Then, with their greater agility and audacity, they snatch the food right out of the eagle's beak.
Every dry season, thousands of barramundi perish. In the past, Aboriginal artists, by painting barramundi, tapped the life essence of that species. And so they ensured that the fish's numbers would always be replenished. Louis continues this timeless tradition. His work of art is now complete. He has drawn on the powers of the dream time, and so the animals he painted will continue to flourish. His wife, Susan, and her friends tell stories to the children and illustrate them with string games. Susan makes a figure appropriate to the season. It represents lightning, and by the end of October, thunderstorms, forerunners of the wet season, are an almost daily occurrence. This forest, devastated by a late fire set by lightning, appears to have died, but the rains will soon revive it. Lightning and thunder are brought by a fearful being called Namarkum. He carries the lightning like an ark over his body and makes the thunder by striking stone axes against the clouds. Aljur, the grasshopper, is painted in electric colors. He appears in November, the time of the most tumultuous storms. The insects are Namarkum's children on earth. Fierce downpours soon replenish the land. In this time of regeneration, nesting birds bring food to their young. Plants respond quickly. Forests that were charred and blackened are soon green again. Flowers and insects proliferate.
To continue Jonathan's education into the traditional life of the Gagoju, Gabariki, Ilkir, and Jonathan's father, Naiji, take him to a remote but important place in Kakadu. The elders show Jonathan how stone knives and spear points are made, how they are struck off a core rock. The stone knives are very sharp and in the past were used in initiation ceremonies to pierce the nose and cut distinctive designs on shoulders and chests. A group of men paint themselves in preparation for a ceremonial dance, a corroboree. Among the Gagoju, there are no longer enough people with the knowledge and skills to perform the ceremonies. This group from neighboring tribes came to help the Gagoju perform their ceremonial obligations. The dancers reenact great deeds and mimic the dreamtime animals. ceremony and compliance with their laws, the Gagoju ensure that their unity with all living things continues, with Marawuti, who rules the floodplains, and with Ginga, who formed the rock country. As long as they look after their country, the life force will endure in all its vigor and bounty. for more than 40,000 years in total harmony with their environment. They have not destroyed any land nor diminished its spirit. That is their monument. And in the long term, that may be the most important of all. The last of the traditional Gagoju men know everything that remains of their ancient culture. Only they have this knowledge. And they are old now. To the traditional people, the loss of their culture means oblivion. Without their culture, their story, they may survive in the modern world. But there will be no more true Gagoju people. the season of the east wind, Nipper Gabariki died. His spirit 
has gone back to his country. Your journey was made possible by a grant from the people of Chevron. We're proud to bring you television that brings new worlds to your world. Was provided by the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations.